Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org. Or to discover more about this radio ministry and our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There are deep questions that run through the whole of human life. These questions reveal something of the quest we as human beings are on and something of the great needs that we experience. And it is these questions Jesus underscored by what he said on the cross. Dying as a man, he could identify with our greatest needs. And rising as the Lord of salvation, he could answer our greatest questions. Again, we've said it. That all that the Christian believes, all that may be said of the good news or the gospel is anchored to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. If he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, then we can have confidence in everything that he taught and everything that he has promised. But for us to believe this, there has to be a measure of validation that is so great that it sweeps us into this belief, and it has to be something more than the sheer magnetism of his personality. It has to be something more than the rumor of the great miracles that he performed. It has to be something more than the ponderance of his great teaching. It has to be something more than the moral energy or the moral strength or the moral influence of his life. It has to be something greater than even these things in order to validate the faith of the Christian. And without this validation, we're not compelled to believe what Jesus said about himself and about his work and what we ought to do and how we ought to live. We're left only with our own desires and wishes of what we want to be true. But there is a validation for our faith. A validation that drives away wishful thinking and brings us into a point of surrender and submission where we bow before this information or this truth in the same way that Thomas did and we cry out, my Lord and my God. And the validation that's been given for us for our belief, the validation for our gospel and all his promises that they're all true, it's the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's facing that reality and that truth that causes us to bow ourselves in complete surrender to him. It drives our faith into something that goes beyond philosophy, something that goes beyond mental aspirations, to rise with him into a living, enduring confidence that doesn't pass away. It's the kind of confidence that allows a people to form throughout all the world and endure through 2,000 years in the midst of temptations and trials and testings and tribulations, and yet remain a people of deep, profound, unshakable faith and confidence. And we want to be a part of that. We want to live in that company and meet them one day before the throne of God and worship of this one that we believe in. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the Christian community has been birthed, that has been brought into life to a living hope, he says, through, this is what we're saying, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's his resurrection that becomes the foundation, the basis upon everything that we believe and all that we hope in. And the question I want to explore this morning briefly is what is it that we hope in? What is it that we confidently proclaim as our faith? What is it that we are secured in believing because of the resurrection? The other day I was kind of running through my mind. Sunday after Sunday in churches all over our 
city and all over our state and all over our country and all around the world, there are individuals that rise up and they have for the last 2,000 years preaching and teaching and proclaiming information that has been expounded or exposited because of their belief and their confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mining out truth from God's word and instruction for our faith founded upon this formulation and this understanding that Jesus has risen from the dead. Thinking about that, I started thinking of my own life. I started thinking of the, the wonderful privilege it's been to simply add my voice to the ongoing voices and instruction that have been carried out throughout this city and throughout this state and throughout this country and throughout the world for 2,000 years. I started thinking, well, how many times have I preached a sermon on a Sunday morning or a Sunday? And I started adding it up. I came up with a rough estimate of about 1,500 messages dedicated to understanding and giving application to the great promises that are claimed by the Christian because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a brief survey of the last four sermons that we've preached in our church. It was a study on the final seven words of the Lord Jesus from the cross. So what I want to do here briefly is just state those seven statements. And then we're going to look at them one at a time. And we're going to see how they answer the basic questions of humanity. So follow me quickly. First, while Jesus was being crucified, while they were nailing him to the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sometime in the middle of the first three hours in which he hung upon the cross, one of the criminals who was next to him, who had initially been mocking him, changed his mind. He confessed instead his sins, and that the punishment he was receiving was what his sins deserved. And he also confessed that Jesus was innocent of all sin. And then he turned to the Lord Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You're the Messiah, and you're returning one day to this earth to reign. Remember me. And this led to Jesus' second statement in which he said from the cross to that man who had repented and believed in him, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. At the end of the first three hours, as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, at the very end of those first three hours, we're told that the Lord Jesus looked down and saw his mother at the foot of the cross, and she was standing next to his apostle John, who happened to be his cousin. And so he said to his mother, directing her to John, Woman, behold thy son. And to John, he directed her to Mary, and he said, Behold thy mother. And we're told after that that John took care of Mary, brought her into his home, and took care of her for the rest of her life. The next three hours that Jesus hangs upon the cross, for he hung on the cross for six hours, the next three hours are submerged in darkness and complete silence. And during the middle of this darkness and this complete silence, we understand that Jesus Christ is entering into the anguish, anguish and the suffering for our sins. And at the end of that time period, the Lord Jesus cried out a question of great anguish, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the fourth statement from the cross. After this, shortly after this, after this supreme moment of anguish, the Lord Jesus then cried out, I thirst. He was given something to drink. After he was given something to drink, immediately after that, his throat being moistened by what was given to him, sour wine, we're told. He cried out with a great voice of triumph, It is finished. It is accomplished. In Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. That is the sixth thing he said. And finally, seventh, he proclaimed before those who were before him when watching his crucifixion. And there were likely thousands before the crucifixion at that time who had gathered from all of the regions around for the Passover, the most important feast and celebration for the Jews at that time. 
He cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, we're told that he gave himself up into death. He laid his head upon his chest and he died. What I want to do is I want to note three things here first, and then we want to look at all of these statements of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing I want you to note about all of these declarations is this. Each of these declarations reveals a need, a longing, a question even that resonates in the human heart. Each of them do. The second thing I want you to see is that these words, as they're spoken by the Lord Jesus while he's in the midst of the agonies of death, he is revealing to us the extent to which these longings flow through the human heart. They go with us to the very end. They're not trifles. They're rooted deeply in our identities. And even at death's door, we cannot shake these needs, these longings, these questions. They define our journey in life to our last breath. Jesus declares them, makes them known even as he's dying on the cross. Here's the third thing I want you to note about this that we're going to point out, and it's that these words also are expressed by one who then goes and conquers death and rises from the grave. And in doing so, he reveals that he is the one who has the answer for these needs and these longings and these questions that are deeply rooted in our existence. He's the one who allows them to be stirred within us. He's the one who has the answer, the settled answer for all these things. He brings us those answers, and those answers are our good news. They're our gospel. So let's look at them one at a time. The first thing Jesus said was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The first great question of the soul is simply this. Is there forgiveness for the guilty conscience? Is there forgiveness for the guilty conscience? Life will reveal to us that we break laws. We break the laws of social expectations, We break the laws of our own expectations for ourselves. You may have forgotten the first time that you ran and hid in some dark corner because you knew you had done something wrong, but you've all done it. You've all done it. We find ourselves in need of forgiveness from others and from ourselves. We can't keep the law of kith and kin. We can't keep the laws of the society that surrounds us. We can't even keep the laws that we make for ourselves that we think are good and appropriate for how we ought to behave. We offend them. We offend ourselves. Have you ever offended yourself? Do it a lot. We offend ourselves. And certainly if these things are true, it also means that we can't keep the law of a holy God. God has made us and designed us to reflect Him and to live in relationship with Him. The Bible actually confirms this. It says that all have sinned and fallen short. Short of what? God's glory, God himself. So we need forgiveness. Above all, we need God's forgiveness. David knew this. David had been granted by God to be king over Israel, and David used his position of power at some point in a very subversive and wrong way. He committed adultery. He then, as king, orchestrated the arrangement of a man's life so that he'd meet his death so he could cover up his sin. This press of guilt was placed upon David, and it didn't release itself from David. He had sinned against his nation. He had sinned against his family. He had sinned against this woman. He had sinned against that husband and so many others. But ultimately, when he came to his confession and made it known, its completeness brought to him a place in which he proclaimed to God against you, and you only have a sin and done this evil in your sight. And David wasn't saying that he was innocent of sinning against these other individuals. He was just saying that ultimately the recognition of sin brought him to an understanding that it was before God ultimately that his sin resided. 
David needed forgiveness and David needed cleansing and David needed the weight of that guilt that was resting upon him to be removed because he had offended the God who had made him king. He offended the God who had given him life. We're guilty and we know it. We sin and we know it. We've ran to dark places to hide it and we know it. And we have different strategies, by the way, for dealing with that sin. We run from it. We hide from it. We pretend it's not there. We avoid the places and the moments and the things that might remind us of it. When we're guilty, we try to run from things. We try to hide from things. We try to ignore the information. We, we try to bury it in some way. At the cross, we have a story of a massive sin that's being committed. The crowd is driven Christ, the pure and sinless one, to the cross. They know he's innocent. They've asked for a guilty person to be released instead of him. They've driven themselves to this awful activity through a number of twisted motivations, some seeking power, others out of jealousy, some for fear of the crowd, others because they're giving retribution to the Lord Jesus because he hasn't given them what they wanted in the moment. Whatever their strategies were, whatever the reasons for doing that, whatever their motivation was in this horrible sin they're committing, they all felt guilty about what they were doing. They all pulled into themselves the various strategies that people do to deal with the guilt and sin in their life. You feel guilty, and the more guilty you feel, the more you protest loudly that you're innocent. And so Pilate... Please join us in our next broadcast as we consider the seven sayings of Christ from the cross and how they reveal the deep questions and needs of our lives. Until then, thanks for listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.